Hi, this is Ann Robertson, the pastor of the United Methodist Church of Westford in Westford, Massachusetts. This is the sermon from this past Sunday, July 23rd, which was a normal Sunday for a change, normal in that we didn't have extra things going on during the worship service, aside from the things that we normally have. Um, the sermon actually comes from the reading that's not there, the Beatitudes, which you'll hear read, do fit. Uh, but the text is really based on Romans 5, 1 to 8, which was read as the first scripture lesson and Paul's introduction to how, how suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. So that's that's the actual passage. You may want to pull that out and read it. The title of the sermon is Happy Suffering. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel, which comes from the gospel of Matthew the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 5 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week, we began talking about the book of Romans as our daily walk readings moved into that book, and we're going to stick with it for a number of weeks. So if you're behind in the daily walk, at least jump ahead and read the book of Romans, and then you'll be up to speed with what we do on Sunday mornings. The beginning of Romans 5 that Blake read could actually have followed as the next paragraph after Romans 3 that we talked about last week. The fourth chapter of Romans is really sort of a sidebar illustration to support Paul's point that we're justified by our faith and not by our works. In chapter 4, he talks about Abraham, who God called righteous before his circumcision and not afterwards. He's saying to the Jews that righteousness is about a relationship with God, something that goes on in the heart and not about outward acts. So after proving his point that we're not made righteous by our actions, but rather by God's grace, Paul goes back to continue the discussion from chapter 3, which ended with talk of what Christians should not be boasting about, in that place, namely, our works. So a word about boasting. The image that that word conjures up in English is never a good thing. I don't think I've ever heard the word boasting in a positive connotation. It's always a bad thing. We imagine some sort of gloating, raising ourselves up while putting other people down at the same time, kind of a I have this and you don't, nah, nah, sort of attitude. 
And that's one meaning in the Greek, but it's not the only one. The word can also be translated as glory and as rejoice and joy. In chapter 3, Paul is saying we have no business boasting about how good we are or about how we've kept the law so perfectly that we're justified by God. Because none of us can do that. We all mess up, starting pretty early and continuing on through our lives. We can't boast about that. We don't do it. Our righteousness is God's gift and not our achievement. But then, in chapter 5, after proving his point with Abraham in chapter 4, he goes back to talk about what we can boast about. And this is where we have to remember that the Greek has meanings for this word that aren't negative. These are not the things we can use to prove that we're better than others. But these are the things that we can rejoice in, the things that we can be happy about. And it starts out well. We can take joy in our hope of sharing the glory of God. All right, good. I'm with him. Makes me happy too. But then he throws a curve that reminds me of that story in Acts where Paul and Silas are singing hymns after being beaten up and thrown into a dungeon. He says that we should take joy in our sufferings. Huh? It's the same sort of odd pronouncement that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that I just read, where he lists all of the people that are blessed or happy. The list includes the poor, the grief-stricken, the hungry, the persecuted. I dare say that most of us don't feel particularly happy or blessed under those circumstances. In fact, when those times of suffering hit, I often get people in my office who feel that God's punishing them or that they're cursed. In fact, I've yet to have a single person in 12 years of ministry come to me to say how honored and privileged they feel because God has let them suffer one rotten thing after another. Nobody, maybe someone will someday, but so far, it's a big zero. And yet, at other times and in other places, that wasn't the case. If you ever read the medieval Christian saints and mystics, you'll find example after example of people crying out in joyous worship because they were considered worthy to suffer as Jesus suffered. A number of them actually prayed for horrible diseases or circumstances to come to them so that they could share in the sufferings of Christ. I can't say that I've ever done that. And I can't say that even now it's high on my list of priorities to pray for. But I think we do have a point of connection with Paul when we think of the way that hardship builds character in our lives. There's a certain shallowness to those who've always had life handed to them on a silver platter. And when we're going through rough times, we want people with us who know about those rough times firsthand. We don't want the simple platitudes. We want the understanding of somebody who's actually been there. Both the Beatitudes of Jesus and these statements of Paul indicate that the purpose of our life here has very little to do with whether we're comfortable or not. So much Christian preaching in the media seems designed to convince us that God's main goal is to make us all happy, wealthy, and successful. I'm not exactly sure which Bible they're reading, but the one I've got has got an awful lot of uncomfortable stuff about crosses and persecutions and spiritual warfare in it. 
Not that God's opposed to us being happy, but it seems pretty plain to me just from my own life that Christian faith is much more likely to mean trouble than what most of us consider happiness. Fortunately, Paul doesn't just say we should take joy in suffering. He tells us why. The answer, as it turns out, isn't so that we can share in the sufferings of Jesus. It's so that we can grow our souls and know the love of God. It's what annoying people have always known when they tell us, it's good for you, it builds character. And many times I've wanted to say to God, I'm content with my character, really. I'm, I'm fine with it. No more character-growing experiences for a while. Of course, in some people, the suffering doesn't actually build character. For those without a faith foundation, suffering can produce anger or depression that can end up in murder or suicide. But Paul is writing here to the church in Rome. And he's talking about those who have accepted God's gift of righteousness and justification. He's talking about the way suffering produces fruit in the life of the Christian. And Paul lays it out. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And again, it helps if we understand some of those words in the original languages. English doesn't always provide a word that has the range of meaning of the original, and we literally lose some things in the translation. The word translated here as character is translated as experience in the King James, and I like that better, because the word has the sense in Greek of something that's both experienced and proven. Tried and true might be a good phrase for the word. What that means is that in the person of faith, the trials of our lives produce the spiritual fruit of patience. And as we patiently wait, God's steadfast love is experienced and proven. Because we've experienced God's love for us through the darkest of times, we have hope that there's then nothing that can stand in the way of God's love for us. Something that Paul will spell out shortly at the end of chapter 8. Suffering begins a process that ends in hope because somewhere in the depths of it, God shows up and proves that we're not being punished, that we're not cursed, that God does indeed love us in and through it all. That allows us to face whatever else comes our way with the hope that what we have placed our faith in is true, that the Holy Spirit really is in us, and that will not be disappointed in our ultimate hope of sharing in God's glory. Jesus has taught us to cast our burdens and our sufferings on him. That first step is the way to ensure that the process works as it's intended. Like with the discussion in chapter 3 about righteousness, we've got to quit trying to deal with it all by ourselves. By ourselves, we won't handle it very well. God is love, and the one whose eye is on the sparrow is not too great or too busy to receive the burden of our sorrow. We've got to get over that and turn our sufferings over to God. That's not easy, but make a point of it. Whatever it is that you're going through, offer it up every single day in prayer. 
Take this situation, God. Take it and use it for the good of your kingdom. Use it to make me a better person and show me where you are in the midst of it. Or whatever words you want to use. Some people just pray a prayer like that. Other people need a more physical reminder and they'll take a box or an envelope or something that they can physically write out their concerns, put them in the box or the envelope and say, okay, they belong to you now, God. You have them. And that becomes a a more tangible reminder that they have given over their sufferings to God. You can burn it as an offering, whatever helps you to turn it over and to give it to God. But when you offer it like that, you have to be willing to accept God's timetable, which is almost never our own. And that's why suffering produces patience. We give it to God, and then we have to wait for God to resolve it or to bring some good out of it. Taking the issue back from God because God hasn't dealt with it in the time that we've allotted for it messes up the progression. We, go, we sort of circle back around and go back to square one. Patience is the proof that we trust God to handle it, that we trust that our prayer has been heard, that God has it, and that God is going to work it out in God's perfect timing, even if the situation isn't changing as fast as we would like, which it usually doesn't. When we've proven our faith through patiently waiting for God, we're rewarded with experience the proof of God's love and the character of God's faithfulness. That experience of God's love makes us hopeful and better able to face the next time around. Eventually, after enough times through the mill and our lives go that way, you know, things are good for a while and then, uh uh-oh, off the edge, and then back up and so on through life. When we've been through that enough times, We aren't just hopeful. We're sure that God is with us every step of our lives because each time we've successfully given over to God, waited for God to act, experienced God's action and presence and love in our lives, we just become more sure and know that God is going to do that again the next time. We know that God is real, that God is love, and that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from that. And that's why we rejoice. It's also why praying for patience is a really bad idea. (laughs) Because that means you're praying for the start of that cycle. You're praying for suffering that produces patience, which produces, in the end, hope. Now, none of this is easy. And if it's the first time that life has really slammed you, or the first time that you've tried to approach life slamming with a faith-centered response, It's very, very hard. And that's why having a faith community, a church, or even better, a small group within a church, is so critically important. Especially the first time through, we often need to be carried by others. Otherwise, we'll break down and we'll take that suffering right back from Jesus and try to deal with it ourselves. And if we do, we'll have no patience, no God-proving experience, and end up with fear of the next assault rather than the hope that God is going to see us through. If life has hit you, turn it over to God. Hang with it and take joy in knowing that if you'll be patient, God's love will be proven to you. 
If you're fairly comfortable right now, look for ways to help hold the light for others while they wait for God. And take notes because your turn will come. This has been absolutely true in my life. Sometimes when the suffering has basically been of my own making, God's love is made known by eventually revealing to me, you know, it's, you know sometimes I ask God, why me, God? And I say, oh yeah, <laughs> now I remember. Some things we suffer because we've made our own mistakes and we've done it to ourselves. And God's love reveals that to us, urging us to repentance and offering forgiveness. Other times, when suffering's been imposed on me from the outside, God's presence has been made known through the extraordinary kindnesses of others, the peace that truly passes all understanding, since I've got no business being peaceful in the midst of such things, through passages of scripture that just leap off the page to console me, or sometimes just an overwhelming sense of God's love. And then when it's over, I can assure others of the truth that I know. God is there. No matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how completely unlikely it seems that God is anywhere in the neighborhood, God is there and God is love. It's the assurance given to those who will put their suffering into the hands of God. Amen. Thanks for subscribing to Spirit Walker Sermons. If you're ever in the area, stop in for worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 10 Church Street in Westford, Massachusetts. I'd love to have you stop by my website at www.annrobertson.com, where you can also subscribe to a weekly devotion, which you can receive either as an email or a podcast. I'd love to hear from you via email at ann at Thanks again for subscribing, and I hope your week is filled with God's blessings.